I, I, I'm going to ask you to step back in time with me. Some of it, uh, my own time and probably many of your own time, as well as in church history, the, the, the position for worship was often standing. Um, and uh, so I'm going to ask you to stand a little bit longer. We're actually going to uh, have our scripture reading now, but we're going to do it together. And uh, so we're going to read Matthew 6, 9 through 13, which is what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. And I know growing up, I did this uh, in my church tradition at the time. Uh, we would stand and we would recite these words. As we conduct this, there's a couple of things I know might be going on in your heart. Maybe they, they, they went on a little bit of mine as I was anticipating doing this with you. Um, this might remind you of the church that you left because you didn't feel like they were taking the Word of God seriously. And... Uh, they were guilty of vain repetition, which is what we were warned about in the previous verses to, to the Lord's Prayer. But I, want, I thought we would just uh, do this together, and I wanted the kids, uh, the children to be with us, present, because maybe you haven't done this in your lifetime. Uh, the public reading of God's Word is, is something we're commended to do in Scripture, and, uh, but since we're going to be studying it together here in just a few minutes, I thought we ought to read it together as well. So I'm going to just read this one slide. Just go to one slide if you don't mind. Jesus says, in this manner, therefore, pray. So he is, he is saying that we are to, in a specific manner, uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Uh, this is a model prayer. It is something that we are allowed to use to guide us in our prayer life. He has just finished telling us what not to do in prayer, and, uh, and now he's telling us what to do, and he's telling his disciples. So if you would, we're just reading verses 9 through 13. We're going to be preaching 9 through 15, but we're just going to read together 9 through 13. If you would, starting with the next slide. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, now you can be seated. Maybe after the service, uh, you can uh, maybe share with me how that made you feel, all right? Um, sorry, I just feel like I'm going to be wandering. So, um, let me get this. It was, a, it was a vibrant part of my life, uh, my, uh, my young life, as, as uh, my family, we were in a church tradition that was very much a um, go and do and participate for an hour out of the week, maybe two hours, depending on if I attended the, the pre-worship um, class that was offered. Uh, but for the most part, I was engaged in my faith to the extent that I thought all that God required of me was to carve out this one hour of my week, and he would be happy with me. And, and I will, I, I'm staying away from talking about the church tradition I come from. Many of you already know that because it's not unique to my church tradition. It might be your church tradition, and we may have grown up differently, but it is a reality that people don't often know how to come to worship, how to, to be engaged in community with other people. There was, there was a token time uh, in, the, in the service where we were to turn to one another and wish them God's peace. And again, that's customary amongst different uh, uh, church groups, uh, church denominations. Uh, and I actually missed the fellowship time that, that, uh, that sometimes we had in a formal way of just greeting everyone. And, and I, I do love that part. But I love that's why I love before and after the service as well. So please get here in time to fellowship with, with some folks and then stay after. 
uh, and fellowship with folks and get to know people because we are intended to be a community. As we have been studying the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we're, we're going to uh, focus here in just a minute on this thing called, this section called the Lord's Prayer, but, uh, which is verses uh, uh, 9 through 13. But then there's these two interesting verses, 14 and 15, that have caused a lot of discussion, so we'll get there. But as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been, we've been, I've been using this term kingdom righteousness. And I, and I said last week, kingdom righteousness is to characterize the lives of Jesus' disciples. So I'm going to ask you to participate a little bit more today. If you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, would you raise your hand? Okay. All right. Thank you. This message is for you. So pay attention. Because we are supposed to be practicing this kingdom righteousness. It's been the focus of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we consider the Sermon on the Mount, beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, to the end of chapter 7, we see that the center of the Sermon on the Mount is the teaching of Jesus on how to pray. If you were to look at all the lines uh, of the manuscript uh, for this section, you would see there's so many lines before the Lord's Prayer, there's so many lines after the prayer, and they're very, very close to the same number. And it's so right here, smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, are these familiar words that we could probably have recited from memory, many of us. Maybe not the New King James Version of it, but we could recite it from memory and be pretty close. And because this is... The center point. Gee, this is important. As, as you think about how Greek text and, and writings were done, there were different ways of highlighting what sections are, I would say, the focal section. They're, it's all important. Uh, but throughout this text, there are words that are put at the very end of the, of the, of the Greek text, of the sentence. And, and by putting that word at the very end, it's highlighting it that that word's important. We'll talk about one of those words here in a moment. Uh, but when you consider this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, for the Lord's Prayer to be center mass, right there in the center, it is highlighting that this is an important text and we ought to pay attention to it. And so we're going to, uh, we could have considered this text in, in, uh, uh, last week or uh, two weeks. I'm not trying to think of now where it was. No, last week uh, with our discussion, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of uh, prayer and fasting, uh, but as, as I think a lot of churches do, they, they take a time to focus on this section all by itself because of its importance, because of its familiarity, but also because of its misuse. So historically, this is called the Lord's Prayer, but I, I don't know, uh, anybody else familiar with a different term? You don't have to shout it out. Just raise your hand if you're familiar with a different, this is called something different in your tradition or, okay. Anybody? Okay. All right. There's few people. Not many. Not many. Uh, I did come across one author that called it the disciples prayer. And I thought this was actually a better term because Jesus is saying, hey, this is how you should pray. And so as he was speaking to his disciples, I believe he's speaking to us. But I think that we could, since we've been talking about kingdom righteousness and this is the way the disciples of Jesus are called to live, I think this is appropriate to call this the disciples' prayer. I'll probably call it both uh, if I reference it by, by a title here on further. But Jesus starts off this section. He says, in this manner, therefore, pray. He has just finished saying, don't pray like the, uh, well, actually, we'll just look at it. If you have your Bibles, I don't have it up on the screen. But he says, uh, uh, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And then He says, in this manner, therefore, pray. So we are praying this in contrast to the, way, the wrong ways it's being done. Don't do it for show. 
And don't use many words for the sake of words. Uh, it is the idea of if I say just the right words, it's almost like the way people approach an incantation. If I say a certain thing a certain way, good things will result or, the, or, or my desired hope will, will be realized. That is not the way we're supposed to come to God in prayer. Now I'm going to ask at the end of the sermon some, some questions that are going to maybe uh, draw you in a, a little bit more specifically as to your prayer life. But as, as we look at this prayer, it is a model. Jesus is saying, pray like this, in this manner. He's not saying you can only pray it word for word. He's saying this is, this is an example. And he goes in and he says, uh, he says the words that we're going to read in a minute, but I want us to see as we approach this prayer, there, there are a couple things we ought to realize. One, when we pray, whether it's this prayer or a model after this prayer or uh, in any time we, we, bow, we bow in prayer or, or praise in God, we pray to a real person. Now, I wanted to bring this up foremost because I think oftentimes when we come to prayer, it becomes somehow a... An, an unnatural event in our life. It, it becomes like, oh, I'm stepping into prayer. You know, whatever your position might be, kneeling or whatever it might be. But how often do we consider the fact that when we pray, we're praying to a real person, someone who is alive, someone who is listening. We've, we were just told that our Father knows the things that you have before you even ask him. So pray like this. So foremost, I'm saying when we approach God in prayer, we ought to approach God from the standpoint that he's a real person. Notice this. It says, our Father. By the way, that word our is uh, one of those words that uh, I believe is, uh, there's a, well, there's a couple words that are used that are put at the end, but this is a corporate event. That's one of the reasons I decided to have you stand and pray this corporately. We often look at prayer as a private, individual event, which is very commending, and we ought to do that. But Jesus says, pray in this manner, and he says, our Father. So we, we pray to a real person, and he is our Father. We, we know this terminology in the sense of Jesus is the Son of God, so he rightfully calls God his Father. It's certainly a term that was used within Jewish circles in, in different times and different places, but it wasn't the most common way of referring to God. Uh, later on, we're told that we can approach God as Abba, Father, a very, uh, a more, even more relational type name and, and approach to God. But we see here that he's not just my father. He's our father. So if, I, if you raised your hand earlier and you sincerely have a relationship with God that was purchased at the death and burial of his son and realized to have changing effect in your life by his resurrection, and we just sang... There will be a day when, we, when we'll, we'll join the resurrection. If you raised your hand and said, I'm a child of God, I'm a disciple, I'm a believer in Jesus, I'm a Christian, then you and me and us, when we come to prayer, we can say, Our Father. And I would ask you to consider the significance of that for your relationships with one another. I should say our relationships with one another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ in a very real sense because our Father is caring for us. Our Father is noticing us. Our Father is leading each of us down a path to look more and more like Jesus Christ. He's going to allow difficulties into our life. He's going to allow joys into our life. But it's all with the same purpose that we would come to know him better, that we would look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. So when we say that God is a real person, we can say our Father, and we can really mean it. But he's not like a, a, an earthly father. And you may have a, a view of an earthly father figure that wasn't the greatest example of what a father is. And, and so it says, in this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven. And so he says... He's a real person, and he abides in heaven. 
It's, it, this, this, the reality that God, our Father, is in heaven makes him unique. And because he abides in heaven and he transcends heaven, and I, I personally believe anywhere where God is, is heaven in, in the sense of, uh, of his, his presence. Obviously, we know that his perfect wrath will be experienced by those in hell. But outside of that, I would just say if, we are, if we're going to pray, we're going to pray to a person who is our Father, and he's not just like my dad, personally. I hope he's with the Lord, all right? I, I hope that the, as he raised uh, all of his children to believe in, in Jesus and, and to uh, respect the Bible and to read the Bible, my hope is that he's in the presence with God. But I'm not praying to my Father. I'm praying to our Father, our Heavenly Father, the, the one that is unique and is, it is solely the the Father of all those who come to faith in His Son. So we believe and uh, we pray to a real person who has a title, but of also a relationship, right? He's our Father. He abides in heaven. And, and this is where it gets very practical. He deserves our reverence. So as, as, we, as we transition into this text, all right, I want us to see. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will on, be done on earth as in heaven. I want us to, from this point forward, we're actually going to see that the Lord's prayer is bro- broken down into six petitions. On this slide, we see the first three. Hallowed be your name is not just, hey, you got a great name, God. It's like, let your name be hallowed. It is the expression of let my life demonstrate Uh, a desire to reverence you in my life. That's the first petition. He says, uh, a a real person, as God is, uh, when we pray to him, he deserves our reverence. And I don't know what reverence looks like for you. Some people, reverence is quiet. Some, Some people, it's quiet and contemplative. I would say as, as we're looking at this prayer, uh, and th- therefore our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your name be hallowed. Let it be sanctified. Let it be, let it be holy in our lives. In this manner, pray, our Father in heaven, let your name be important to us. May your name be used in a way that honors you. May, it, may I live my life in such a way that it brings reverence to your name. It's not just a matter of getting quiet and being contemplative. It is the reality that every area of our life deserves reverence to God. When we approach our our finances. Are you being reverent to God? When we say hallowed be your name, it's not just the name Yahweh. It's not just the name Jehovah. It's not just the name, the different names that we have, uh, El Shaddai, and all, all the different names that we have been given in Scripture. When we talk about this hallowed be your name, it's, it's you as in, in your entirety. All that you are ought to be reverenced in our lives. So when we come to prayer, I, I often think we, we could recite this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the way I learned it, right? Hallowed be thy name. It, it is, it's something we can just allow to run off our lips and never enter into the seriousness of what we're praying. We're saying, let my life, let our lives reverence you in our church decisions in the way we conduct ourselves, in interpersonal relationship, the way we conduct ourselves inside these walls, outside these walls, in our community, when I'm alone in private, when I'm with my family, when I'm with friends, when I'm at work. No matter what area of life we can say, may we live in such a way that we reverence who you are in that moment. It's not it's not the world's view of Christians or the world's view of religion that says somehow you have your regular life and then you have your religious life. For a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's all worship. 
It's all hallowing the name, making the name of God holy. It is already holy. We don't have no ability to, to affect that in terms of, uh, God, I make you holy. It's the idea of living in light of his holiness. That's what it means to be hallowed, to have his name hallowed. So, so when we pray to a real person, he deserves our reverence, but he also deserves our loyalty. Now, when we say loyalty, uh, we often, we might talk about being loyal as a fan, right? Uh, I always tell people I'm loyal to my, my football team. Uh, and therefore, I become a New England Patriots fan because they're not my team. My pe- team was done away with. They changed the name, and I no longer have a team, right? I identified my team with the name of that team. And when they changed the name and took the name away, I'm no longer a fan of that. And, and therefore, I'm no longer loyal because there is nothing to be loyal to. And my brothers would argue that point with me. Uh, but when we come to God as a real person, he has always existed, he always will exist, and he deserves our unchanging loyalty, our undivided loyalty. He says, your kingdom come. This is the way Jesus says we ought to pray. Lord, may your kingdom come. It's, it's not the, the, the idea that somehow we are going to usher in the kingdom and somehow if we do all this work, God's kingdom will. It's like this is God's kingdom and Jesus is the king. And we know that the kingdom is present because the king is present. And so when we talk about praying to God, our Father who is in heaven, who we desire to, to live in reverence to and, and demonstrate His holiness in the way we live our lives, be ye holy as I am holy, as we seek to be like our Father, we have a desire to be loyal to His kingdom, not ours. To be loyal to His kingdom, not the kingdom of this world, which has a different ruler, which we'll talk about in a little bit. We are to be loyal and I don't know what loyalty means to you in the sense of, of living out your daily life. To be loyal to your company that you work for, right? There's this idea of, um, uh, what do they call it, industrial espionage. The idea of, of you work for one company, but you sell their secrets to another company. That's pretty much frowned on. It's illegal. You'll go to jail. You'll get fired. All kinds of things. But that's not loyalty. You're saying, I work for this company, but I'm really trying to benefit these people that are willing to pay me to do wrong. As we talk about living our life in light of of this disciple's prayer, it's the idea of we are supposed to be solely loyal to the kingdom of God. We are smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount dealing with kingdom righteousness, and we're saying, your kingdom come in the now. In my life, Father, you are a genuine, you are a real person. You're not some far off, distant, uncaring God. You are an imminent, close at hand God who's involved yourself in my life. And Lord, I'm part of your kingdom because I've come to faith in Christ. Let your kingdom come in my life. And may, may I be involved in the, in the kingdom responsibility to be a messenger of reconciliation in the lives of others. May I see the kingdom come alive in the lives of others as I tell them about Jesus. As I hallow your name in everything that I do and people notice, I can, they'll say, why do you do such a thing? Why do you act such a way? Why don't you talk this way? Why don't you do these things? Well, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it matters the way I live. It matters the way I speak. Not because I'm, uh, I'm somehow appeasing this far-off God. No, I have, this, I have a Father in heaven. And His name is holy to me. And I desire for His kingdom to prosper. And for His kingdom to be lived out. And I am loyal to my King and my Father. We're also supposed to, God is also supposed to deserve our obedience. Now, that's often what people think about when they think about the Christian life. Well, I just have to obey. Well, no, there's, it's a lot more than obey. He, he says here, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and so we're, pray, we're saying, God, may, may what is already true in heaven, can you imagine heaven 
somehow being disobedient to God. Well, we, we have a, uh, a chronicle of that when, we, when a third of the angels disobeyed God and, and followed Satan and they were cast out. We call them fallen angels. So there, there was a time, apparently in heaven, where people said, no, I want my will to be done, and they received penalty for that, eternal punishment for that. Uh, but as, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a child of God, we're supposed to say, your will be done here and now. We are supposed to pray for God's will to be done in this world. I, I was reading through my emails, and there's a, a, a group called Cornerstone, that is, um, they help us understand what's going on in politics, and, and there's a referendum or, or something coming up here uh, 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 next week, I think it is, right? this, this week. And it's uh, dealing with the voting of uh, apportioning funds for uh, um, companies or, or, or organizations like Planned Parenthood, and, and, and the reality that that uh, money, our tax money, is going to be used to prosper these uh, places that commit murder. And, and Cornerstone is that group that's helping me stay abreast of those things. And so I'll, I'll share sometimes with you. Uh, you can get their emails. But it's, it's saying, listen, we want God's will to be done here because it's not like it is in heaven. God's will is done in heaven, but there, God's will would be that people not be murdered. He would say that God, we would say that we believe God's will is that babies should not be slaughtered in the womb. We believe that, but it's not reality. It's actually taking place every day. But we're praying as we come before our Father, who is a real person, and we're saying, Lord, well, you're, we pray your will be, to be done here and now in our own life and in our community and in our country, and we can pray for these things. We can be absorbed in praying for others and, and praying for the will of God to be done in our family's life, our children's life, our parents' life, our neighbor's life. We can, we, can, we can petition the Lord as we think about a model prayer. And we say, listen, we could pray literally for hours for God's will to be done here and now like it is in heaven. Now, someday it's going to be true, right? Every, we're going to be in God's presence. Sin and death are going to be done away with. And we're going to be in his, in, in his uh, presence. And his will will always be being done. But we live in the here and the now, which is still a world that is overwhelmed by sin. Does your prayer life reflect? Does our prayer life reflect a desire to see God's will done in the lives all around us and in our nation? So these are three petitions that we see uh, uh, coming here. Because we, we pray to a real person. And, and the foremost part of Jesus saying pray like this is to prioritize God. He's saying prioritize God. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's prioritize God when you go to prayer. Let's think of him first. But we pray to a real person who cares for our real needs. And this is the second part of the prayer that Jesus gives us, this, this model prayer. We're praying to, to God, the Father, but he cares for our real needs. These are the, the second set of three petitions that we see. We see that, one, he cares to provide our sustenance. And you might think after, after Thanksgiving, I've had a little too much sustenance. But no, we're talking about, listen, there is a, a desire for, for um, a God desires to, to meet those needs, those basic needs of our lives. It uses, give us this day our daily bread. And in this context, I think it is talking about food. But I, I think we can approach this as a model prayer, and, and, and I, I'm, not, I'm not alone in this, the idea that our daily needs our clothing, our, our, our security, uh, those type things. You know, Lord, we pray that today you would give us bread. 
Now, if, if you were to think back in, in the, the life and history of Israel, uh, and when they were dependent, can you name a time and place in Israel's history where they were dependent daily on God providing them bread? When, what, what was going on? And anyone say it out loud. The exodus, all right? They exited Egypt. They went out into the wilderness. And, and God said, you know what? I'm going to give you this stuff called manna, which I think, I think that I forget the definition of manna. I think it's like, what's that? All right? It's the stuff, right? It's this white, fluffy stuff. It sustained them in the wilderness. But what happened when they collected it in the morning? They were supposed to eat it all on six days out of the week. They were supposed to eat it all. If they didn't, it, was, it would go bad and become putrid and be filled with maggots. And then on the Sabbath day, they could collect two so that they wouldn't have, or excuse me, the, the, the Saturday, excuse me, Friday, they would collect double portions so they would have that for the next day and it would not go bad. But they were dependent on God for their daily sustenance. And so as we come to God, who's a real person, we can pray this way. Give us this, Lord, give us what we need today. There is this thing called the prosperity gospel that's out there. There are people telling us that it is okay to pray for all the things we want because God wants us to be happy. God wants us to be prosperous. God wants us to, to uh, have all that life, this life can, uh, can offer. And, and, and then they explain it. If you don't have it, it's because you're living some deficient Christian life. But when we look at Scripture and we look at church history and we say, no, no, blessed are the poor. Right, Those who are struggling to, to survive, God manifests himself to care for them and to provide their daily needs. I would say the prosperity gospel is of the devil because it's a different gospel. God's word says he will provide what you need. The prosperity gospel says, hey, no holds bar, shoot the moon, whatever you want, pray for it. I don't think that measures up with what we're saying here. God, our Father, give us this day our daily bread, just what we need. And then we have to learn to be content in that and not be distracted by uh, another person or another brother and sister who seems to have so much more than we do. No, we need to learn contentment. He cares for our real needs. He forgives our sins. And this is, this is a powerful passage, right? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The idea of a debt, is, is, it's pretty common to understand that this is talking about sin. It's not saying, Lord, I have this massive financial debt. Will you forgive me of it? No, this is the debt of sin that we owe God. When we violate God's standard of perfection, it's called sin. And we have to pray God, forgive us of our sins. It was helpful in reading, and I'll share a little bit about this. If, you were to, if you're struggling with this idea of what it means to have a debt to God, uh, think about your debt to, to other people. If you have a debt, such as a, a loan or a mortgage or a, a, you know, anything, or even you borrowed something from someone, you're indebted to them. You have, and, and this one commentary I read talked about whenever there is a debt, someone pays. Either you pay, if I, if I talk about my mortgage, right? Either I pay my mortgage or I pay the consequences of not paying my mortgage. But either way, someone's going to get paid. When we talk about the overwhelming debt that's going to be talked about in Matthew uh, 18 when we get there, and we talk about the the, the servant who was forgiven an astronomical amount and he couldn't forgive his neighbor just this little bit. I didn't want to use that too much in this text because I believe in taking it in order. But we see in Scripture that the idea of debt and debt representing sins is something that's used quite often. And the reality is that our sin debt, the fact that everyone in this room has sinned against God and therefore we are indebted to God, we violated the standard, we need to have our sin debt paid. 
Thankfully, for those that have raised their hand, they're saying, no, Jesus has already paid my debt in full. Past, present, and future, Jesus has paid my sin debt. But if you didn't raise your hand this morning, then you still have a debt of sin that you will end up paying and by experiencing God's judgment that is only reserved for those who have not come to faith in his son. So we implore you, come to faith in Jesus Christ and let God be your father who will meet your daily provision, your sustenance. He will also forgive your sins. Now he says there, and forgive us, Father, forgive us of our sins as we forgive our debtors. This is, this is kind of key as we go into verse 14 and 15, but it is a reality that there is a relationship between the way we forgive and our forgiveness of others. Long story short, for the sake of time, I will say this. If you raised your hand and you said, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, I am a child of God, I am a Christian, then you are called to forgive others because of the forgiveness you've received. It comes a little bit more clear, I think, in, in the next section. But we're saying, listen, God, as we're praying, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's, this relationship is here. How are you at forgiving those who've sinned against you? Are, are you asking God to forgive you the way you forgive others? I think the right way to take this is that we are to forgive others because of the way God has forgiven us. And he says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He delivers, uh, the fact that God cares for our real needs, a real person caring for our real needs, he delivers us from the grip of Satan. That is the idea of having our sins forgiven, but it's the idea that this is a continuing thing in our lives. We're praying in the here and the now, right? Let your name be glorified, right? May I live in such a way that, that honors your name and and, and that I honor you in all areas of life. I'm loyal. I'm obedient. And now we're saying, and do not lead us into temptation. This word temptation can either be temptation or trial. And, and there's all kinds of discussion about this. But let me just give it to you the way I, where it means, where I've practiced this in my own life. It's, we know God does not tempt. James tells us that God does not tempt into sin. He does not do that. He is incapable of leading someone or, or uh, tempting someone with sin. It goes against his character, and it can't happen. So that's not what this is saying. It can't be saying that. But he's saying, do not lead us into temptation. If you take it to the word trials and do not lead us into trials, that actually, I mean, I think maybe you could pray that. But when you consider the fact that a trial is something that God uses to grow our faith, to demonstrate the reality of our faith, why would I pray for God to not lead me into a trial that's actually going to demonstrate my faith in Him, my faith in Jesus? We grow and mature through the many trials. So I don't think it's telling us to, to not, you know, don't lead us into those trials that are actually going to be honored by God to saying, see, you are a believer. I've, I've come. I've shown up in the midst of your trial. I think what we have here is the idea, Lord, don't lead us down. Don't allow us to go down the path of temptation. I think of Proverbs where it talks about the, the, uh, the foolish uh, boy, the foolish man that walks down the street he shouldn't go. He knows what's down the street. And he goes down the street anyway. Wisdom says, don't go down the street. For you and your life, I would say, what is the sin that is abiding in your life? What is the thing that you are most focused on not doing? Because I want God, my Father, to be, to be holy in my life. I want to be loyal. I want to be obedient. And for me to do that, I can't go down the street. I can't go in that direction. Lord, do not allow me to walk down the path that, of temptation where I will fall and sin against you. Lord, please do a work in my life. Protect me from that. Don't allow me to do that. Deliver. This is two sides of the coin, but deliver us from the evil one. God is a God who delivers, not just eternally, but every day. That's why we say the gospel is for every person at every moment because the gospel is not just to get somebody saved. It's to enable us who are saved to live a life that does all of this. 
And when we are aware of the gospel, when we understand its power in our life, we are delivered from the power of Satan through temptation. Have you ever been headed in a direction that you know was wrong and then God does something in your life and you're like, no, I'm not going to do it. Romans 6 says that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. And in your Christian life, you've matured to the point where you say, I don't have to sin. I am free to live a life that honors God. That's this idea. Don't, don't be led down the road. Lord, I'm praying. Please don't allow me to go down the road that's going to dishonor you. Deliver me from, some versions will say evil. Some say, some, this one says evil one, talking specifically Satan. It's, it's a question mark. But either way, it's both a demonic realm and it's the idea of God is able to deliver you from whatever sin that you're caught up into. So we praise a real person. Uh, actually, we praise, sorry, we praise a real person. This is the uh, doxology, uh, I, I, which I want you to understand. If you don't have, if you have one of the other versions, it's not even in there, right? They, they have taken it out. It's a footnote or whatever. But it, uh, I, it, whether it's uh, the original to the text or whether it's uh, someone that comes on the scene and they, they, they actually are saying, uh, breaking out in a, in a doxology, Paul did that all the time. That may be, I mean, it could be Matthew here just stepping out in, in, in a doxological statement. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's when the things of God become so personal and you, you've experienced his deliverance, his this provision of sustenance and protection, all those things, you are prompted oftentimes to exalt Christ this way. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But I do want you to understand that, that many versions do not have this appended to it, all right? But I want us to understand that we, we praise a real person, right? When we praise God, we are praising someone who has made himself present in our life. So what are we supposed to do with Matthew 6, 14, and 15? This, these are not the formal portion of the Lord's Prayer. That's 9 through 13. But when you get to 14 and 15, there's some pretty powerful stuff going on here. And I encourage you, read about it as I read about it. Because if it says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespass. There is a lot that we could talk about here. But I am very focused on keeping it simple and not allowing all the what-ifs to get in there. But we are talking about forgiveness of sins, right? For if you forgive men their trespasses, the sins they've committed against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So I, I kind of voiced it this way. We pray to a real person who cares for our real needs and is not content to allow us to persist in unforgiveness. All right? This is the full, this is, this is the main point of the, of the whole sermon, right? We pray to God our Father. He's real. And He cares for our real needs. But when we get to 14 and 15, I think what we're seeing is that He is not content to allow us to persist in unforgiveness. Now we've talked about we're supposed to love our enemies. I think that means forgiving our enemies. And, and forgiveness may be something that you've experienced in your life or maybe that you struggle with. With uh, I'm reading a couple books right now uh, on, on the topic, but I will say because we're gonna we're gonna hit this again in in the future as we go and come through Matthew, all right? But we pray to a real person who cares for our real needs, and he's not content to allow us to persist in unforgiveness. Our forgiveness of others is met with God's blessing. That's what He says here. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This ought to be the practice. This is the goal. As we, as we talk about Sermon on the Mount, kingdom righteousness, this is kingdom righteousness. Forgive those who have sinned against you, and you will experience God's blessing. But our lack of forgiveness is met with God's, I, ha, I struggled with a word to use, but I think what it, where it's getting across here is some idea of God's disapproval, of God's lack of blessing, because he says, if you forgive men their trespasses, you'll be forgiven. But if you do not forgive, your Father will not forgive you. How are we supposed to understand not being forgiven by God 
when we understand that the gospel is for every person at every moment. Is there an unforgivable sin if I die and I haven't forgiven Ken for the offense he gave it to, that he did against me? Will I go to hell? Will I not receive the forgiveness of God? What we see in this text is, is we compare Scripture with Scripture and we understand forgiveness of God comes through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Only God's Son could die on that cross, and it's only those who come to faith in what He did on their behalf that one is saved. So what kind of forgiveness are we talking about here? I think it's uh, an element of relational forgiveness, right? If you don't forgive what the people have done to you, God is somehow allowing for your trespasses against others to not be forgiven. In other words, I don't think you'll have the peace of God. If we are characterized as children of God, of being unforgiving, we hold grudges towards others, we are, we are holding on to offenses and, and relishing in them and remembering them and, and holding it against a brother or sister in Christ, you are not going to experience the peace of God. You are not going to experience the blessings of His, of his forgiveness. Because he's saying, no, 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 no. We're not talking about uh, the, the eternal salvation question. That's dealt with already in the nature of the gospel. What we have here is we're praying God the Father who is meeting our needs and all these things. He's saying, listen, be children of God who forgive. Don't allow unforgiveness to come into your life in such a way where God is going to basically not let you experience his blessings. This is true in, in Peter when he talks about husbands praying for their wives. He's like, you know, live, live in good relationship with your wife uh, or your prayers will be hindered, he says. It's the idea if you're not a good husband and you're not considering your wife, God is going to somehow allow your life to experience some negativity. It's not dealing with your internal salvation or damnation, but it is talking about your daily fellowship with God, which is important as we're praying to him as children of God, we are to be people who are forgiving. So we pray to a real person who cares for our real needs. And he's not content to allow us to persist. That nagging reality of not having the blessing of God. We will never be at peace. And he's saying the way to, to experience that joy and that blessing, forgive those who've transgressed against you. So a simple question is, how is your prayer life? Now, we could say, how is our prayer life? That's the context of this passage. It's a corporate thing, but we often will pray privately. So you can say, how is your prayer life? These are reflective questions. Are you approaching God as a real person? Somehow do you get on your knees or get alone in a room, and somehow God is this distant person that you're fearful of? Or that you, no, he is this person who is imminent. He's close at hand. He's there with you in that very moment. Well, how are you approaching God when you go to prayer? Are you prioritizing God in your prayers? This is a model prayer, and, and Jesus says, go ahead and prioritize God up front. Let's get, the, let's get the structure correct. You are God, I am not. But because you're God, I desire to live a life that honors you, but I also have needs. And I want to submit those needs to you because I know that you can answer and provide for my needs. Are you asking God to meet your real needs? Are you coming from the standpoint of desiring to be content? Are, you, are, your, are your petitions on, on, that are on your behalf, are they, are they legitimate, the needs of your life? And maybe you don't know. Well, ask, pray for God's discernment about those things. Are you forgiving those who have sinned against you? Are you one who is characterized by forgiveness? I know many Christians, I really do, I know many Christians where unforgiveness is a staple in their life. It is, it, is, it is sad to watch. And you remind them, you remind them, like, didn't Jesus die for you and forgive you all? Didn't God forgive all your sins? Yes, he did, Pastor. Why can't you forgive us? Well, Pastor, I just, I can't get past it. Now, I agree there's a process. But you should never be content with I can't get past it. 
it ought to be, I haven't gotten past it yet, but I'm continuing to pray. I'm continuing to desire that God would help me forgive those who have sinned against me. So I want to encourage you this morning as we consider this very familiar prayer, this model prayer, this disciple's prayer. When you go to prayer, would you turn here and try it a few times and model your prayer life on this? I had a brother, actually a couple brothers in Christ uh, tell me that um, because of a book they read about this prayer and, and because of this prayer, that's the way. Last week, just two people, uh, they told me that they model their prayer life after the Lord's disciples' prayer, and it has changed their prayer life. I encourage you to give it a try as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come to prayer. And Lord, even as I pray throughout this service, I'm very aware I often use the same words. I often express the, the same sentiment. Father, I pray that as I lead a, a congregation in prayer, as I even now am, am trying to encourage others to pray in a way that honors you, I pray, Father, that I would not be guilty of being a hypocrite, of telling others to do what I'm not willing to do. So, Father, as we corporately pray together right now, I pray, Father, we pray that you would make yourself large in our life and that the things of this world will be diminished by a knowledge of who you are. It will be diminished by understanding your power. It will be diminished by understanding your ability to meet all needs. Your, uh, it'll be diminished. Our fears are all the things of this world that, that eclipse you at times, that they would, they would fade in the background because you are our heavenly Father. Father, I pray that we would not be caught up in the, in the formal nature of prayer as much as it is the focus of prayer and the meaning of prayer. And it is to come before you with petitions. To petition you to honor yourself as only you can and petition to, to meet the needs of ourselves or, or those, um, the, I mean, our needs or, or the needs of others around us, Lord. May we come to you in faith. And Father, if forgiveness is an obstacle, for us, I pray that you would bring that to the surface so that we might truly understand the depth of forgiveness we've already received in Christ and be willing by your grace to extend that mercy and that forgiveness to others. Father, I pray that you'd glorify yourself in the lives of your children as they come to this prayer as a model in the coming week. Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself by drawing others to become your children. I pray that people would see the way your children live, be enticed by it, be curious by it, be overwhelmed by it, and come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.